0: welcome back, everybody. It's me, your best friend, Rachel Evans. Is that a lot? Feels like a lot. I'm here with one of my very, very good friends, and honestly, wealth of knowledge. I'm blessed to have you. Michael Verratti. Hello.
1: Hi, Rachel. I'm excited to be here.
0: People who are good at podcasting will do like an intro and then uh, introduce their guest, but I am not good at podcasting, but I'm great at being a human, which makes it hard to not say hello to the person immediately, you know?
1: I appreciate it, and you know what, I would rather you be a good human, above all else.
0: Thank you. Michael. If you guys don't know who Michael Verratti is, shame on you. But also, let me educate you. He does one of my favorite podcasts of all time. I shit you not. It really, truly is. And that's how I found you. I like have been listening to Dead for Filth. It's called Dead for Filth, which is a great name. Thank you. Um, I've been listening to it for a long time. And then I reached out to you for a project this year and you said yes. And oh, my goodness me.
1: Oh, it's been great. I'm
0: tickled. <laughs> I mean,
1: I've, I'm so excited that I got a chance to work with you. We have gone down like a very spooky path together, which yes. is everything I love. And I know that you adore that as well. Mm-hmm. So,
0: Will you tell them a little bit about the podcast and also uh, your writer, all the things that you're I mean, you're doing you're doing a lot. Uh, yeah.
1: I mean, let me see if even I can keep it all straight. <laughs> uh, yes. As Rachel mentioned, I host a show called Dead for Filth, which is all about the intersection of queer identity and the horror genre. Every week I have a different creator or uh, personality from the horror space to talk about the intersection of queerness and uh, what drew them to this world of fright. Uh, We also go down the path of uh, other topics. Uh, We're interested in cultural intersection and genre uh, in any way that does not necessarily relate to the mainstream. Um, I've had a lot of really amazing guests on over the years. Rachel's been on. True. I've also had Darren Stein, who created Jawbreaker. Uh, Jeffrey Reddick, who uh, cool. created Final Destination. Peaches Christ has been on. Veronica Cartwright from uh, Witches of Eastwick and Alien and The Birds. I mean, I had a guest on <laughs> who worked with Alfred Hitchcock. How cool is that?
0: Maybe it's cool. I've heard not great things. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, more so just like film legacy. Not yeah. him as a man. It's like, cool. yeah. yeah. Uh, And then, uh, as Rachel mentioned, I'm also a working screenwriter. I have been uh, writing movies and directing uh, for a number of years now. I write a lot of independent horror films, but I also write a lot of TV movies. That's right. uh, For networks like Hallmark, Lifetime, and ION. So I always say I wrote the uh, movie that your punk rock kid brother liked and the movie that your mom (laughs) loved.
0: You are, like, such a baphomet. You are such a—there's such a duality in you. It's amazing the, like, sweetness of the Hallmark movies and just like, oh, it's holiday time. <laughs> time for Michael Verratti. And then also, like, blood. <laughs> right.
1: I mean, I never really view them as all that separate, which always weirds people yeah. out when I say. But uh, I think... For me, especially the the Christmas movies. Like if I'm writing a thriller or something for Lifetime, you can get the sense that there is a horror element to it. Sure. But uh, if it's a Christmas movie, I always view it as sort of cult cinema anyway, because it has a dedicated audience mm-hmm. who's very invested in the rules and universe that they fall in. Uh, it's just a different kind of cult cinema
0: genre. That's interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting like way to view genre as kind of that. It's a nice undercurrent. Yeah. We're all the same.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I definitely, you know, I just like to, to do different things and tell different stories. But, yeah, I do that. Uh, I'd Like Rachel mentioned, we worked together on a show she produced that I – hosted called History of Fright. Check it
0: out, please. It's so good.
1: I had so much fun doing it. Every week I would give a little bit of history on uh, some horror topic, from final girls Mm -hmm. to Italian giallos and beyond.
0: What a segue! This episode is going to be about queer icons in horror. And what I mean by horror is, like, I don't just mean the film genre horror. I mean, like, the culture, the society, the you know what I mean. Yeah. So we're going to start with number five, which is Carmilla which is something that I know you know a lot about, but for those who don't, let me educate you. So, some like 20 years before Dracula was ever even a twinkle in Bram Stoker's creepy little eye, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, yes. <laughs> what a name. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu gave us the steamy lesbian vampire story Carmilla. Oh bless, I read it after you did the episode of History Fright on it, Mm -hmm. I read it for the first time, and I was like, oh, damn. Right? It's How is it allowed, too? Well, especially when you think
1: of that era of literature. It was, as you said, it's a full 20, 25 years before Bram Stoker even sits down to write Dracula. So we know what kind of, like, Victorian-era puritanical viewpoints are going on at the time.
0: Right, and, like, what's interesting is that, unfortunately, yes, this, like, iconic lesbian story was written by a man, but... Product of the times baby. not everyone can be Mary Shelley, and that's okay right Also, what I found to be interesting and maybe this is a hot take and maybe this is just me, but I I, I only have my mouth so I can only speak for me. but what Lafanu did was he didn't write Carmilla from a female perspective from what I understand he he wrote a character, mm-hmm. and obviously her femininity was the apex of her appeal, but she was a monster, an aggressor, she was passionate and she was sensual, but at, at her core, she's a monster, which, I mean, not to be, tw- I'm, it's 2019 and I'm trying not to be sexist, but uh, to, be, to be honest, a man should write that role. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, that that kind of, well, here's, and here's the thing too, which I don't actually know is if this is sexist, but from me, I'm trying not to hate men is my thing I mean, you know right you get it like because i love men also same every day i love people right okay men are people too rachel (laughs) get it together um but i do find that she had a masculine energy that was kind that wasn't written as this is a woman with masculine energy it was just this is a monster this is a character and this is her as a whole and she felt very layered and um, unapologetic, which I find a lot with these like female monsters you see part of them that are that retreats and is like, oh, but my lady parts make me not want to murder you And I saw none of that with Carmilla.
1: Right. And I think that there is an argument to be made and I'm, I'm sure that some scholars have have said that because of the cultural mores of the time mm-hmm. and that Carmilla is so very clearly this bloodthirsty monster, That by also casting her as a lesbian, it was some sort of commentary on what the state of homosexuality was at the time. But I don't necessarily feel like that's what Lefmanu was doing. Uh, It's not that he wasn't doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think what was more interesting about how Carmilla is presented is that it's sort of just a matter of her fact. She is this thing. She is this creature of the night who just happens to be drawn to women. It's not made a big deal out of. Which is very, very rare in that kind of literature uh, to just all of a sudden be like, yeah, and I am this beautiful maiden of the night who is just so happens to be interested in the young ladies.
0: Right. Yeah. It's funny because the message wasn't like, oh my goodness, lady love. The message was, you've corrupted this young woman, Right. um, which is not a gendered action at all no if anything is
1: culturally uh kind of rooted of, at, at the time it was more about this notion of virtue yes and the idea that like women had to be you know their their maiden head had to be protected at all costs but it didn't really seem to have a lot to do with the fact that it was being taken by another woman it was mm-hmm. more so just that was that was the thing. We must protect the virtue of our girls. It's
0: what's yeah. I what I love about it too is that it was during this Victorian time where the roles were so strict and like you you stayed to your roles completely. And then this thing comes out that completely challenges that and gives so much power to women. Right. And gives so much power but from woman to woman too, because the fight is between them. Right. And the duty is between woman to woman and so to give a woman that much power in the 19th century late 1800s is wild to me and it's just like I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that like if women had read that and saw that as powerful as opposed to shameful right imagine if they if they could have just harnessed the power of that pussy in 1871 right imagine where we would be now. Carmilla tried.
1: Well, Carmilla tried. And I think that what's really great about this particular work is how foundational it is. Mm. Uh, And I think that um, Carmilla also proved that even when you're trying to utilize horror and darkness to sort of vilify aspects of certain things, we're drawn to it. Right. People were obsessed with this book in such a way that Bram Stoker reads it and was like, I, too— want to write a vampire novel. And a lot of the early tropes of of, uh, Dracula come from Stoker being a fanboy of Carmilla. And what people don't realize, this is sort of like the hidden queer history of horror, is that things that we take for granted as just kind of like foundational bedrock of the genre, a lot of them have queer beginnings because it's usually that sense of otherness that pushes the boundary that catches the attention of an audience. Modern vampirism, as it is presented in fiction, would not exist without a lesbian. Oh and goodness. that, to me, is amazing. Like, we attribute it to Dracula, but Dracula doesn't exist without Carmilla. So, ipso facto, you gotta have your sapphic sister first before we get the count. And no, no disrespecting what he did. He's got his sure. place, but, yeah,
0: know. that Yeah, that just made me emotional. That just <laughs> made me, like, tear up. Because it's so true. It's so true that, like, that... It's crazy to think about the thing that we think as the pinnacle of vampirism, Dracula. Right. Its roots is in a lesbian woman. Exactly. Who owning her sensuality. And what you said was so on the nose, too, about um, it's something that's vilified, but you can't ignore it, which is what we talked about slightly on your podcast on Dead for Filth, was that the reason why I love horror so much is because it's like that toothache that you keep putting your tongue into, right? where it's like, there's something about it that you need to explore because you, you know that it's a part of all of you. Yeah,
1: and I think it's true. It's like holding up a, a dark mirror to yourself, to mm. society, to culture. And I think the more you look in the mirror, you realize that maybe the monster, as the world sees it, isn't the issue at hand. Snap.
0: Uh, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. That was my neck snapping because you've gagged me too hard. Um, gross. I'm sorry, guys. I'm so sorry, most of them are 13, they don't wanna hear that. Oh no. Yeah, no, they do, they do wanna hear it, that's the thing, that's the thing about 13. Um, Picture yourself at 13.
1: I was reading stacks of Stephen King novels, and it's like the grosser the better. You wanna hear
0: it. Um, Speaking of kind of like these undercurrents in older movies and how uh, you can look back on older cinema and see the queer of it all, um, that really, that brings us nicely to number four, who is uh, James Whale.
1: Ah yes, James Whale.
0: Which I'm excited for you to tell me about because I started, I I read after you mentioned him to me, I knew he was, but Mm -hmm. you know, peripherally. And so I really started to dig in and I was like, there's no way that I'm gonna understand this from my perspective. Well,
1: and it's it will be hard to do a brief overview, but essentially for fans of uh, classic cinema, James yeah. Whale is the man who directed the original uh, Universal monster version of Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, mm-hmm. that famous pop culture image of Boris Karloff with the bolts in his neck. He directed Frankenstein, and he did subsequently directed Bride of Frankenstein, also iconic.
0: Yes. And The Invisible Man, which I love.
1: Yes. And he also did a movie called The Old Dark House. Yes. I mean, he has had what, like quite a run there. And uh, James Whale, as we know, uh, was a gay man in mm-hmm. Hollywood at a time where it was not necessarily a good idea to be out. Uh, but what you talk about when you look at the films of the era is uh, queer cinema always has had a presence, even if you don't know it, it just used to be coded into things, and so like maybe you couldn't necessarily bring things out directly, but if you watch old movies and you're like, oh, is this character gay? Yeah,
0: yeah, sure if, is.
1: Yeah, because you uh, weren't allowed to say it, but boy, you could get there. And like, yeah,
0: usually that was used for bad. I remember. Yeah. I remember growing up through like Disney era. That was always kind of directed towards like. The villain right. was the queer one. Scar right. is the gay guy. Like, that was always kind of positioned in my world, but it's really interesting to me to hear about what James Whale did to, to speak to his community.
1: He did, and when you think of Frankenstein especially, I mean obviously the foundations are there with Mary Shelley's novel, mm-hmm. but then what Whale does in the film is really, really take the time to focus on the plight of the monster. Because in this case, the monster is the other, the, the, the person who's rejected from society. And there are all of these sequences where you as the viewer kind of intuit, he's misunderstood and just wants acceptance. Mm. And the world is treating him as this pariah. They would rather chase him away because they don't want to take time to understand that which they do not know. And uh, so I think the ending of the original Frankenstein where the castle burns down is very bitter uh, sweet because on one token, if you're just like there at the afternoon of the movies, you're like, yay, they beat the monster. But really the monster is man in this film. Yeah. Uh, and Bride of Frankenstein really furthers the queer kind of narrative because when the Frankenstein monster is, is resurrected or returns, the whole goal is that Dr. Frankenstein feels guilty that he has created this thing that is alone in the world. And he bears some responsibility to make sure that this uh, monster can find love. And it's sort of just this whole narrative of like when you are othered so much by society and all you want is a companion is love. That is a queer narrative. It's not necessarily like just a strictly gay or strictly lesbian, but a queer narrative. Yeah. Because it's like this character exists outside and just wants to belong and at least wants one other person like them that they can relate to it's
0: kind of the beard of frankenstein isn't it it
1: is and you know what's really kind of cool is there uh, somebody make that poster the beard of frankenstein i cannot wait (laughs) um the other thing that's kind of remarkable about bride of frankenstein is it takes place on uh the wedding night of dr frankenstein right and he and elizabeth get married and they're on their honeymoon, and then Dr. Frankenstein's, like, slightly older mentor, uh, Dr. Pretorius, shows up. And he's like, hello, I uh, hate to drop in on your wedding night when you should be getting sexy times with your wife, but, like, I got this thing that I should do, and uh, I need your help.
0: And he's like, of course. He's Sorry, like Absolutely.
1: sweetie. So I always have loved that James Whale literally inserted in the narrative of Bride of Frankenstein that a man comes and takes away, Dr. Frankenstein from his own wedding night, and he willingly goes. Yeah. And if you watch the movie now with that understanding, <laughs> you know exactly what's going on.
0: I need to rewatch kind of like with this filter on because I feel like so many people get the otherness from right. the idea of Frankenstein. Like for me, I've I've always felt other than. Like I've always like subscribed to queer culture and whatever that means for me. Right. And Um, you know, don't necessarily live a linear path. And so when I watch something like Frankenstein or something that has a monster like that, I relate to that um, in my way. But learning, I think it's important to learn more about the person who made the thing Mm -hmm. because... That'll help you understand their perspective and like their otherness.
1: There's a really wonderful movie that's all about the life of James Whale called oh. Gods and Monsters that Ian McKellen was in, and okay. it was directed by Bill Condon, who uh, directed Candyman too. Uh, as well as several of the Twilight movies he too has had uh, quite a adventurous career
0: Candyman We're about to that's we're about to talk about candyman well, a little bit I love some <laughs>
1: Candyman. Uh, but uh, I think now before we transition into that what you're talking about is looking for this otherness. It's very mm-hmm. important for people who uh, are wanting to tap into this side of horror and the the idea that horror can be used as social commentary to understand that horror at its like chorus level is all about otherness. Mm-hmm. And that can manifest in many different ways. I mean, yes, the monster can be other, and we can relate to, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon who is merely trying to live its life when, uh, you know, these white colonizers come in and try and take away his land. Yes, bitch. You know, otherness can manifest in, like, Laurie from Halloween, where Laurie is part of a clique of girls, but they're more popular, and Mm -hmm. they're more confident, and she wants so badly to be like them, and, like, they're off you know, having sexual adventures and like being the cool kids and all she wants is a boy to call her. And then it's like she has this anxiety and this fear and it manifests in this one night. Right. And so then that's what the power of horror is. It it shows us things and it can use a monster or a creature or something dark uh, in a fictional way to represent something that's very real to us. And, uh, Otherness is something that unless you are a straight, white, cis man in America or in the world, you have experienced in some way. So that's why when you watch things, uh, otherness and horror is always key. Get Out is all about otherness. Uh, You know, any queer horror movie is about otherness. Every final girl is a woman who's surviving a man-driven world.
0: Yup. You know what's so funny is that in 2019, and this is not... I don't know why this feels controversial, but it it kind of does to say which I always just end up punching myself in the face after these. I'm like, what are you talking about, Rachel? Don't be such an idiot. But I do feel like in 2019, finally, like cis straight white men. Are getting a taste of what it means to be other. They're they're having. It's not that they aren't the majority. They are, right. and they will be. Like you're fine, guys. Right. That and, what and please
1: it, stop throwing fits when things don't go your way. Exactly. Because we like, have to
0: deal with it every day. <laughs>
1: yeah, we've literally lived <laughs> our entire lives. I, I mean, just as as a gay man, I, I know I have it easier than some people because I'm like a white gay man. Right. But. There's still, like, the things where, like, I see these, like, straight white guys throwing, like, fits. Like, I'm blah, 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 And I'm like, yeah. I don't
0: get cast as much anymore because they want diversity. It's like, well, yeah, you had 80 years. And
1: can you imagine if, knee. like... A, a person of color, a woman, or a gay person com- complained at all. You'd be a bitch, or oh, I yeah. would be like, you know. I am like, all that, that,
0: the time. I am. Yeah. I am very consistently annoying. I'm obnoxious. I walked yeah. in. I walked into a conversation that two executives were having, but two male executives were having about me, saying that I'm just a little much sometimes, and I was like, Yeah, bitch, I am, because I have to be. <laughs> right. I have to be as loud as I can be, so you hear me. Finally, and honestly, I do kind of think the horror genre for that because their otherness is the that's the protagonist yeah like that's the main character yeah my main character of my story is me and if that means that i'm you know lori from this newest halloween running around like screaming like a chicken with her head cut off because there's a monster coming for her and nobody believes her i know that the monster's there so I'm gonna keep yelling. Yeah, we've been new. We, we we've been. New. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Never mind. Anything I was about to say nice about cis straight white male just went completely out of my window. <laughs> um, I'm, but you're fine, and you're doing fines. You're doing yeah. amazing, sweetie. You're doing amazing. We're speaking
1: pr- of we're proud of you. Speaking of white men.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's gay. Um, uh, Clive Barker is number three. Yes. Which I'm actually very excited about because for some reason I thought he had died. I um, know, uh, alive and well. Super yep. alive and well. Like yeah, yeah. super well looking good, Yeah, looking like very fresh and clean.
1: Very British.
0: Yeah, I love that for him.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Clive speak, but one of my favorite things is uh, he has this amazing speaking voice, where well, it's very deep. Yeah, I was I listening was to him. reading this afternoon this
0: tome. I bet you were, Clive. <laughs> I'm sure you were. It's like he's never had a sip to drink. <laughs> no, not in years. In years, there was this cartoon Sheets in the
1: mid thousands that like uh, one of uh, these companies did a teddy scares. I don't know if you remember no. them. It was a company that had like scary teddy bears, and they made a cartoon in conjunction with it. It was just like one episode, but Clive's one of the bears, and it's like amazing because he's
0: like "Good afternoon, I'm enjoying my tea." Spare time oh it's <laughs> giving me a lot of inspiration for like the things that i want him to narrate in my life <laughs> oh man could woo? what if hey ways if you're listening not a sponsor but you could be um get a clive barker voice right for ways take a left turn left or we will tear your soul apart. Oh. oh, I love that. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Just take a left. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, if you don't know who Clive Barker is, shame, shame. Just kidding. No shame here. I always shame them for not knowing things and yeah, that's I, not the way. I
1: thought the point of this was to educate. It's
0: not yeah. the way. It's not the way to teach people. Imagine if every time I didn't know something I felt shame for it. I would never want to learn again. So I'm sorry from Auntie Rachel. I'm sorry. Clive Barker <laughs> is pretty amazing though. Yeah, He wrote these novellas and stories that later became some of the most beloved horror films of all time, at least to me, because I am a bit of a Hellraiser. Hellraiser is... Well, he wrote The Hellbound Heart, which was later adapted by himself. Yeah. He adapted it. He's amazing. Like, reading about what he chose to do because he... I know that he... Well, he adapted it into the film Hellraiser and its subsequent films, but, like, okay. But I know that he wrote a book that was adapted into a film before Hellraiser and he didn't like the way that it was directed so he decided to be the director right for yeah. Hellraiser the
1: movie in question uh was Rawhead Rex I believe oh, okay which was yeah. a movie that was about a monster that is uh dug up in uh ancient Ireland well, it's an ancient Irish monster that is, is dug up and then like stomps across the countryside. And he looks kind of like a Power Rangers villain. Adorable. Uh, I went and saw a midnight screening of it uh, last year, and it's he pees on a priest, so it's no. not all bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. No.
0: no. <laughs> what I find interesting is that he was like, I can do it better. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'll do this. I want to shape this narrative wholly and completely, which I'm actually surprised that more authors don't do that.
1: Well, it was really weird, uh, this era. I, I was just talking about this on... Uh, Sam Pancake show uh, Mm -hmm. because we were reviewing a movie that was directed by the author and that kind of happened a lot more in the 70s and 80s than it does now because Stephen King directed a movie of uh, Maximum Overdrive. There
0: were more authors. Yeah
1: Uh, Michael Crichton directed a number of his own films Uh, and the fact that Clive Barker did three or four movies as well. Now like if you went kicking into a studio and wrote I bet I wrote a best-selling novel and i want to direct the movie. I mean, get out of here. Yeah,
0: you're not a director. Um but what i think is so interesting about like watching Hellraiser kind of with that knowledge. Yeah makes a lot more sense in a way Mm -hmm. because it is it is a crazy movie it is if you've never seen hellraiser it's what is it's about i i just tried to explain it i literally just watched it three days ago and i'm like what is it about um one of my favorite movies it's this guy's and they're in a house they open kind of like a dybbuk box i guess as a jew that's what i would call it but it's a De- a box filled with demons. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking
1: of it like as an angry Rubik's cube. It's
0: a, it th- yeah. that is exactly what it is. It's a shiny, angry Rubik's cube that rips your flesh off. Yeah. Um. <coughs> oh my God! I just choked on my tongue. What if that was my moment and I turned inside out? My flesh. And,
1: <laughs> oh. and would I finish my my bottle of water first? Yeah, you yeah, could. Yeah,
0: right I would. I would insist. Um. But anyway, well, I these. Assume.
1: I don't want what's happening to you to happen to me.
0: Exactly. That's what's happening. I'm dehydrated, <laughs> so your your skin turns inside out. Yeah. In the movie, these demons—I guess they're demons—right?
1: Angels to some, demons to others.
0: Exact fallen angels yeah. come to this man in his home, and they terrorize him. They rip him flesh, his flesh off, and then his brother comes, and then they all fuck. I don't. It's a lot. It's a lot of sadomasochism. It's, it's a lot of. It's so sexy.
1: Yeah, it's super sexual. Yeah. And here's the thing about Clive Barker and his relationship to. Uh, Queer horror. He was sort of one of those people who blew the gates open on this discussion, Mm -hmm. Uh, because Clive came out uh, initially as bisexual in an interview in Fangoria, after having a, a, a bit of you know clout and acclaim. I didn't know that. At a time when nobody was really talking about this sort of stuff, so it was like, oh my god! And like all of a sudden, there's this person who could be held up as like he's one of our community, and he's out here making horror movies. And uh, what was really fascinating about Clive's work was how unapologetically sexual it was, Uh, and it was always sexual in kind of like a horror sort of way. Mm -hmm. But it didn't shy away from it. There's like when you watch Hellraiser, there's fetish gear, and it's very just like, oh, this isn't just like sexy times. These are like people into some kink, and it's like, oh, okay, like we're just we're just leaning into that that queerness and that otherness. And uh, it's so amazing how he just by pushing sexual envelopes of things that I assume he himself was probably just interested in, it also created a wider discussion of what is the relationship of sexuality to horror, which then leads to like all sorts of facets. And then of course, because Clive as a queer individual was making this, then it it forced scholars to start thinking about like, what is the queer relationship to horror Mm -hmm. in a wider mainstream sense? And uh, Hellraiser was certainly one of those movies that, like, I don't think it's uh, necessarily, like, overtly queer, but it's super queer.
0: It, it, that's what I find so interesting about this conversation, because, like, we've talked about earlier how um, the queer nature of a film can be related to its otherness. Yeah. And I feel the same way about sexuality. Mm -hmm. The more openly and kind of defiantly sexual something is, in my head, the more queer it is. Because when you're pushing the envelope when it comes to sexuality in general, it opens – like you said, it opens a discussion for all these different things that kind of – It normalizes the idea of sexuality in a way that makes it a lot easier for people to discuss things that maybe aren't on the straight and narrow.
1: Right. And something I do want to clarify is that, uh, you know, Clive's vision of sexuality is what a lot of people would consider extreme.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: And I think that it's it's important to clarify that, like, obviously not all queer people are necessarily into extreme sexuality. Not everyone uh, is
0: a leather daddy.
1: Right. Uh, and it runs the gamut. Uh, and, but what I like about the envelope he pushed, by taking it to that level, it forces a conversation across the board. Mm-hmm. So whether you are not interested in sex at all, you're vanilla, or you want like hooks from the ceiling, it's like, well, now the door's open, and so this is a discussion we can have.
0: Right. Yeah. And- I, the the way that he contextualizes the sex as well is so like everything around it happening is so extreme right. that the sex kind of becomes a later conversation. Like right. it kind of just is, just like Carmela just is. Like right. it just kind of is throughout.
1: Well, the thing that's fascinating about it is, it's in a major way, the these stories almost work as the ultimate no kink-shaming message. Yeah. Because all this actual horror is happening in the world, and he is like, and you're going to worry about the sex? Right. And that's what I think is kind of fascinating. He, like, frames it with such horrific other stuff that the sex (laughs) is almost, one, not sexy, and B... Uh, It's uh, too just not consequential and that's kind of smart he's just like you're so worried about what people are doing (laughs) in the bedroom when there's actual horror and bad things in the world there's
0: a literal pinhead in your living room and you're concerned because he's wearing a little bit of leather like chill honey Um, something cool about him too is that he in 2003 he won the Davidson Valentini award at the 15th annual glad media awards Yeah, so good for him and he's i did some like other peripheral research on him he says that he's a christian which i find very interesting he says that he's very openly against organized religion but he identifies as a christian and i think that that is it's a it's an entire another conversation sure but it is interesting yeah
1: for sure i think though judeo-christian themes definitely uh work their way in if anything uh, and he is defiant of them
0: right well but I find that really beautiful to have a movie like Hellraiser that's so kinky and so demonic and devilish and fun and stupid (laughs) and great and to have that kind of coupled with the idea that the writer director of it is struggling with his own Religious morality and sure. expressing that in the way that he feels the way that he needs to express it I think is kind of something about that that's really liberating to me
1: Yeah, but I also do think that in some cases like sometimes especially if you're a creator who pushes the envelope There is something to be said about having an establishment that you can rail against sure and there I mean, John Waters often talks about just sort of like the hetero- heteronormative shift of the queer community where some, even though, of course, we want equality, mm-hmm. some of the things that he used to consider scandalous and fun aren't as fun anymore because everybody's just, like, the establishment's opinion of it has changed.
0: I can't fight you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I liked fighting you before. I understand that as, as a woman. I totally understand that. Whenever, yeah. like, something really fair happens in the way of, like, equality in the workplace, I'm like, when would you learn that trick? <laughs> 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 What's that about? Oh, wait, hold on. I, we just have to tell you just one thing real quick, so just sit tight and we will be right back, I promise you. See, I told you, that wasn't too long. That wasn't too bad, and now we get to talk about more stuff. Look at us, being friends and lovers, maybe. Moving on to number two, which, I mean, an icon to end all icons... Elvira.
1: Oh, Queen. Mistress of the Dark. Mistress
0: of the Dark. Elvira I think something really interesting about Elvira that not a lot of people know is that her name's Cassandra Peterson. Yeah. Something what we're gonna talk about with Elvira is not probably what I think everybody else talks about, which is her work and her status and, you know, how what she's done for the horror community, which is a lot, obviously, but I think that the Thing that I find the most interesting that I don't really know a lot about is the idea of queer uh, or drag culture. Yeah, in horror, which I know is—I mean, you're you know this.
1: Well, it is. uh, You know, so Elvira. I don't know if a lot of horror fans uh, in in mainstream know that Cassandra views Elvira as a drag character.
0: Yeah, which is a huge conversation right now happening. If you guys are watching RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars, Gia Gunn. Um transitioned and she is a woman. Yes. And she's competing or mm, spoilers. She's competing right. as a woman in drag right. on drag race, which has been a huge point of contention in the drag community. Um, which I think is just like why what is uh, well, it's it, confusing to it, me. It is
1: confusing for a number of reasons. One, I think that while drag traditionally to the world at large mm-hmm. has always kind of been the idea of gender illusion, that's really not what drag in a larger sense is. Mm -hmm. And in the history of drag, and especially radical drag performers like the Cockettes in San Francisco or uh, Satsagogo, or even just members of John Waters' Dreamlander troupe, uh, a lot of drag is all based on persona curation. Mm -hmm. And so anybody can be a drag creation a drag queen a drag king it's all about what you put on it's like putting on a mask to become the realest you yeah and um so there has been a long history of biological women and trans women in drag uh and they uh they've always been there so now that like because drag has been on tv for a few years that the middle of america seems to have an opinion of what they think drag is Honey, you better learn. Like there's a whole lot of educating you need to do.
0: Yeah, tell that to Michelle Visage. Tell yeah. her she's not part of the drag community. Michelle
1: Visage is a 100% a drag queen. She
0: is she So
1: if you think Visage is her last name, no. That's Michelle a drag Visage. name. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I didn't something I didn't know about Michelle Visage is that she came up I mean, I learned, but she came up in the the, the like ball, ball the ball yeah. culture, like yeah. she's knee deep in the drag community, so this is not new, yeah, like the idea of a woman as a woman doing drag is not new, but what what how do you think that this drag character of Elvira either personifies the entire like to me, when I look at Elvira, I see horror, like I yeah. see everything that I love about horror,
1: well, and I think that you would because yeah. drag and horror are both artistic expressions of heightened Mm. reality.
0: Oh, yes, okay.
1: And so when you uh, take- Did you see
0: me? Just You you, you got me. I was (laughs) like, oh honey, okay.
1: (laughs) When you take uh, a a persona and you put it in drag, what you're doing is you're turning it up to 11. Mm -hmm. And so Cassandra Peterson is a person who lives in the world Elvira is a person who lives in our fantasy. In the dark. Yeah, and she is the heightened version of Cassandra. And when I talk about horror and drag specifically, this is why I always want to uh, drive home to people that drag can be a great number of things. There can be drag queens, there can be drag kings, but there can be drag monsters, there Mm -hmm. are drag people. And what that is is when you take something and you put it on, and become bigger, but also maybe become a more authentic version of you or a a, a heightened persona, that's drag. And um, yes, Elvira is a great example in the queer community of uh, horror drag, but so is Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger. Because when Robert becomes Freddy, that's essentially what drag is because Freddy is so fully realized you're not thinking, oh, this is a man playing this character. You can conceptualize. Back in the 80s, Freddie used to go on talk shows as Freddie.
0: Wow. And it
1: was like, that's a drag persona. Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman. just thinking Paul Rubens. Yeah, yeah, is 100% a drag character. I don't know if Paul would say that, but it, it is 100% to me what mm-hmm. that is. So then, you know, this idea that you take your persona to live your fantasy, that's drag. But in the horror space, because horror is taking reality and looking at it through a heightened lens whether it's for social commentary which drag also serves as or just to entertain which drag also does mm-hmm. uh, there's a kinship there and a lot of uh drag queens in this sp- in the space uh, over the years have gone to genre and gone to horror to cultivate personalities
0: well speaking of I mean I I think that's kind of a cool segue into my number one, who, in honor of you, oh. is Peaches Christ. My dear
1: friend, um, Peaches Christ.
0: So cool to me. So cool. Like, I need to know everything about what Peaches Christ is like at brunch. Is it the same?
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I will say that Peaches, uh, Peaches' uh, government name is Joshua Grinnell, uh, wow. filmmaker Joshua. Uh, and Joshua is a lot um more reserved than peaches is, I would hope by so. his own admission mm-hmm. um, but I think that goes back to exactly what we were just talking about where you uh, are able to put on a mask and, mm-hmm. and, and entertain the world
0: and so what is it about because I, I I find John Queens like very interesting to me right. like you said earlier like the monster idea and also the high art idea like somebody like um somebody like milk who yeah. kind of defies gender completely. Mm-hmm. When you find somebody like Peaches or somebody like Sharon Needles right. who really dives into this world, this genre world, I'm always curious, as a fan of horror, is this a genuine fandom or is this like you found a niche and you found an audience to speak to and like, because of the very clear intersection between queerdom and horridom, right. um, there's like, a comfy little gray area to sit in between? Or is it like do they see what we see? Are we are we deriving too much meaning?
1: <laughs> no, I mean I th- I think for Peaches, this is all very authentic. This yeah. is these are all her passions. These are things that she loves. Uh to kind of do the quickest autobiography uh, the, the the quickest biography I possibly could sure. because it's it's a grand story. But Peaches grew up in Baltimore, uh in Maryland area, where uh John Waters was a presence in Divine, this larger-than-life drag queen who's in the movies. But, uh, eating poop in the movies. Eating poop in the movies. <laughs> but then uh, Joshua also went to a Catholic school and felt very much uh, as an outsider in that way. And this thing that was used against him and his gayness, the idea of Jesus Christ not accepting who he was, mm. when he creates the drag persona of Peaches Christ, he takes that name back, just like the way we reclaim words to empower us. Wow. And so...
0: That's incredible.
1: Peaches grows up watching the movies of John Waters and watching Elvira on late night TV, and Peaches always says that if, you know, Peaches is the, the... child of elvira and john waters because this is literally the concepts and the 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 world of filth and horror and glamour that raised her Mm -hmm. and when she first became peaches she did it in a student movie that she was making in uh penn state uh called jismop or a love story uh they had hired another drag queen who dropped out and like the last minute peaches stepped in um but she will also say that like she was probably just waiting for that moment to finally do it Interesting. And from that moment, Peaches was out in the world. But like Peaches already had this this history—the reclaiming of Christ, the, the love of Elvira, the love of late night movies, the love of John Waters—and uh, this idea that um, Peaches was born in a movie. Yeah, is exactly who she is, and uh, she's one of my my favorite people and a very dear friend. Uh, we work together every so often. Uh, we've been writing a film together. Uh, but what she's done over the years uh in in San Francisco and then subsequently in the world, she took her love of horror movies and cult movies and made that her job. She started screening movies at uh at theaters in san francisco uh under a under a, a banner called Midnight Mass mm-hmm. and oh. she would screen these movies.
0: Is that still happening?
1: Uh in, in variation. They still okay. do they still do them. I don't know if it's specifically called Midnight Mass anymore. But Peaches and like a troupe of drag performers would show like Female Trouble or Teen Witch or okay. Showgirls. Yeah. And they would do like a drag presentation before it and then screen the movie because these are the movies that Peach Peaches worshipped at the altar of. And she knew that these movies helped shape who she was. And by presenting them and having people have the opportunity to come and celebrate them, it was providing that community because when people talk about cult movies what they're really saying is community right and it's that's like the coolest way i think for queerdom and horror to intersect is peaches was literally like we found ourselves in the movies so why don't we find each other at the
0: movies Ooh, and that's ah. like
1: so cool you know oh
0: my god <laughs> every so often People will come in here and say things that make my nipples really hard and that was one of those things. <laughs> um, sorry guys. <laughs> but no, i that's so amazing to me because like the idea, it's just, I think horror is special because it's one of those things that you can be a student of forever yes. and fall in love with every time you learn something new. It's mm-hmm. unlike anything else because mostly you learn more about something and you, you love it a lot less. Right, But like making food don't do that, because then you learn all the gross stuff. Did you know they cut off the fat before they give it to you? But it's there, and you have to touch it. I cooked a chicken last night. I'm not into it. I'm um, sorry. I'm, I'm I've learned a lot about
1: your phobias right I, j-
0: I just don't like to touch the meat, you know? But whatever. Well,
1: there goes your sofa life.
0: I know. There, <laughs> there goes my Tinder bio. Um, but... <laughs> Sorry. It's um, not
1: even noon I know.
0: But no, but I that's what I love so 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 much about horror is that I fall in love with it every time I talk to somebody who also loves horror because you're reminded that this is a community, like you said, of individuals. It's like every the thing I think the thing that is so unique about the queer community is the same thing that's so unique about the horror community, albeit the queer community has a lot more uh strife and there's a lot more connecting. There's not a lot more connective glue there than the horror community you know but um the undercurrent's the same the the message is the same that this is these are two communities comprised of individuals who have found each other allowing each other to be individuals right and everyone that we just talked about is so fiercely different in the way that they express their love of the genre right and it doesn't it only bolsters the argument. It only like it only makes it larger and contain more multitudes. And that's I just love it, Michael. <laughs> okay.
1: I get no argument from me. Do
0: you feel like the more? Cause you you work in horror a lot more than I do. Um, I just get to I just get to do this, and then I enjoy it as a fan. Mm-hmm. So like, do you feel like? that's true for you, the more you learn about it and the more that you discuss it, you fall deeper into it or has like, you know.
1: Every day there's something new about this genre to be excited about. Mm -hmm. Whether it's just new creators, uh, new stories. The thing about horror is it's, there's no limits. You you can have the weirdest idea and if you can tell that story, then there's an audience for it. Right. I mean, there's highly intellectual art house horror and then there are movies about tomatoes that eat you, and we love them both. <laughs> and I think that's it. It's like, it's an allegor- it can be an allegorical genre. It can be a hysterical genre. And uh, there's always new stories to be told, but there are also new stories to discover and new things to be taught. Um, there's a really great documentary that I just went to the premiere of last week called Horror Noir, which is all about the history
0: Amazing, yeah, of
1: black horror, Mm -hmm. and it is so important that people see this to understand just like what I'm sitting here saying. You know, there's been queer narratives in horror all along, Mm -hmm. there have been black narratives in horror all along, as well as any community that needs to find their voice. Horror has been able to provide the voice first because by being the genre of outsiders, we got a place where we could connect with each other and play and tell, start telling our stories. And then what's funny is like, all of a sudden the world catches up. Jordan Peele makes Get Out and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, there's this movie with social commentary <laughs> all about the plight of black Americans. I'm like, yeah, black people have been making horror movies for years and I'm glad that Jordan has like allowed that avenue for people to now go back and discover all this work of the people mm-hmm. who have been doing it for decades because he knows that and he has provided an avenue for more people to go and discover all of the hard work and people who maybe were overlooked by a society that chose not to see it. And I think that that's the other thing I love about horror is it is a place where marginalized vo- marginalized voices can go and be loud and not be marginalized. And uh, that's exciting to me. Yeah. The stories are exciting, the history is exciting the The ability to discover new things about the world around you is exciting, and I don't know that people always think about that when they're just you know popping in a spooky movie on a Friday night. But this genre has that impact, and it always did, and it always will.
0: Goddamn. <laughs> well, um, I literally could never say anything after that that will mean anything. So uh, thank you so much for sharing and for being here and for everything that you do for the genre and for my own soul well thank
1: you for having me it was so exciting uh to come and talk to you and uh do a dark five countdown i hope i didn't ramble too much as i tend to do so. no
0: i was like i was enraptured <laughs> i think is the word for it um can you let them know how to find you
1: yeah uh i am on most social media as just my name at uh, michael varatti that's v as in victor a-r-r-a-t-i uh, if you want to check out Dead for Filth, we are on most podcast platforms as well as easily found on Twitter at Dead for Filth. Uh, it also is on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, yeah, please track me down. Say hi. I'm always willing to talk about all manner of things spooky and queer.
0: So. Yeah, guys, if you guys are, I also, for my plug, want to plug Michael Verratti. So um, <laughs> if you're not following Michael Verratti, you're you're, you, like I said before, I'm going to shame you for it. I'm shaming you, shame, shame. Thank you, he's waving a bell, yeah. you can't see it. Maybe you can, if you're watching on the internet you probably can, hi. Okay, well this has been great, I'm gonna go cry. I don't know why, maybe I'm near my Yours moon are cycle. Tears good for you. Maybe I'm about to get my period.
1: Or maybe you're a werewolf.
0: Oh my god, I, I'm hairy enough, honestly. <laughs> 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 okay, well I love you, goodbye.